Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 15. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to the question that Paul raises in verse 15, where he asks, and it can be a very searching question, one that we all do well at times to ask ourselves, I'm sure, when he asks, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? One of the most heart-stirring books I've ever read, which allegorically describes the process of salvation, is John Bunyan's The Holy War. I know I've referred to that book on a number of occasions in recent days since we're going through his book, Pilgrim's Progress, in our Sunday school class. Their brother Alan is doing a great job in leading discussions and playing the recording for us having us look up scripture verses to demonstrate the truth of what Bunyan puts forward. It has been suggested, and I've said this myself, that if Pilgrim's Progress had not become the famous classic that it became, the Holy War certainly would have become that classic instead. In this story, Bunyan likens the conversion of a soul to the capturing of a well-fortified city. But he doesn't end his story with the capture of the city. 
He then goes on to give a detailed allegorical description of the devil's subtle plots to re-infiltrate the city and recapture it for himself. And after the devil gains a stronghold in the city again, Bunyan describes the misery and the necessary measures for gaining back the initial blessings of salvation that over time had been lost by the citizens of man's soul. This is common Christian experience. To gain the blessing and then to lose the effect of the blessing. It was evidently the experience of the Galatians. And so Paul asks them, Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? Oh, how blessed they were, how devoted they were, how dedicated they were to the apostle himself in the early going to the point that they would have gouged out their own eyes for him, as the text says. And that's what leads some to speculate that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some infirmity that he suffered in his eyesight. It could be that that blinding revelation of Christ to him on the Damascus Road just had a permanent um, impact upon his eyesight and may have made it difficult for him to see, may have left his eyes constantly watering and swollen. Uh, That's possibly the case, but we don't know for sure. But we do know that the Galatians were certainly initially blessed by the gospel to the point that they would have given their eyes for Paul. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? There is in this question something encouraging as well as challenging. The question presupposes, doesn't it, that there was a blessedness The Galatians knew that blessedness. That's the encouraging aspect of the question. Paul is calling upon them to recall something that they once possessed. He's not calling upon them to gain something that they've never known, but to regain something that they once knew. This is the challenge and perhaps the sad irony of the question raised by Paul. In spite of the fact that they once had the blessedness, it is apparent that they have it no longer. What they used to have, they don't have now. What happened? Where did it go? How did they lose it? Where is the blessedness that you spake of? Now the Lord who knows the end from the beginning knew that what the Galatians experienced would become common to all Christians. They would gain the blessing, and the blessing would then somehow vanish. And so it's a question that we do well to contemplate and even pray over, because as we'll consider, it is at times the lack of prayer that contributes to losing the blessedness, And renewal in prayer is what can regain the blessing that's been lost. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? 
I'd like to consider first in connection with this question, another question. And it's simply this. This is my first heading. What blessedness is Paul inquiring about? What blessedness is Paul inquiring about? What do you mean, Paul? What blessedness did they have that they lost? Well, he's obviously talking about the initial joy of salvation. This had been their portion. This was something that they had never known before Paul brought the gospel to them. Verse 3 describes them before this blessing. Look at what it says. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. You notice how Paul says, we. He's including himself in the description. And it can be said of all before they discovered the blessing of Christ. We were in bondage. We were slaves to the devil. We were slaves to our sin. We sought pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment in the pursuit of sin. And you learned eventually that sin can't satisfy and the pleasures of sin are but for a season and the pursuit of sin just adds weight to the, to the burden of guilt. The weight of guilt pressed heavily upon your shoulders and you may have found your way hard, but then the Lord diffused a quickening ray and you learned of his provision in Christ. By his grace, you found your way to Christ and you entered into joy. And not just joy. I love the way Peter expresses the joy of salvation when he refers to it as joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is a joy beyond description. This is a joy you cannot adequately express in words. That's why he calls it unspeakable and full of glory, which means that it's weighty and it's good and it's right, this joy. And you entered into peace and not just peace, but a peace that passes understanding, a peace that only a Christian knows that is unlike anything that the world knows. And so the weight of guilt was released. You gained a whole new lease on life. Indeed, you gained new life. Life took on new purpose and meaning. Old things passed away. All things became new. The wonder and joy of sins forgiven became your portion. The assurance of everlasting life infused in your soul a new source of strength. You became conscious that you were the object of God's love. And what love? It was a love that went so far as Calvary's cross. It was the greatest display of love that the all-knowing and all-wise God could conceive. It became yours. And it filled your hearts with such joy and peace and assurance that you could, in the words of verse 6, cry out to God, Abba, Father. You became aware that you had been adopted into a new family, the family of God and the family of God's people. 
And you were able to see in that adoption the blessedness of your newfound hope. And you were able to interpret in that adoption the manifestation of God's love for your soul. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or the children of God. 1 John 3 and verse 1. This blessedness was your portion. Can you recall it? And don't we all have to admit that we long for it? We remember the early days of our conversion, a number of us do. I can remember the feelings that filled my heart to overflowing. And the thought that dominated me in those days was, I have to tell others about this. This is a blessedness unlike anything I've ever known and experienced. And this is a blessedness that others needed. And I know I was very naive at the time in thinking that the world would be excited uh, to hear what I had to share. Boy, was I in for a crude awakening. And alas, I discovered that this blessedness defied description. How do you explain to others in mere words the joy and peace of sins forgiven and everlasting life? Others weren't interested by and large. And my disappointment in a lack of response was eventually displaced by a sense of gratitude when at last I came to realize that my heart at one time was as hard as theirs. How is it that I gained an interest in Jesus Christ? How is it that you gained an interest in Christ? Why did God single you out to be an object of this blessedness? And so the blessedness created not only exuberance, but it also created humility and gratitude. This is the blessedness that Paul has in mind when he raises this question to the Galatians. Where is the blessedness you once knew? What a wonderful blessedness it is, but it sets up a contrast in irony when we're forced to ask the next question, which is this. Where did the blessedness go? Where did it go? It was a source of marvel to the Apostle Paul that he would even have to ask such a question. Back in chapter 1 and verse 6, he writes, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, our day could be characterized, I'm afraid, as a day in which the gospel of Christ has been so perverted as to render it ineffectual. In the case of the Galatians, it was being displaced by a form of legalism. In his little book, Why the Conflict with Rome Must Continue, Robert Raymond suggests that Romanism finds its roots in the legalism of the Judaizers found in the book of Galatians. 
This is one form of gospel perversion that can draw Christians away from the blessedness they once knew. And you don't have to go to Rome to find legalism. You need look no further than the evangelical and fundamental churches in our day that minister the Word of God in such a way that it moves Christians to pursue perfection in the power of the flesh and leaves them so disheartened and discouraged that they wonder if God could ever be pleased with them. And it's not so much that they dogmatically assert that you should run in the power of the flesh. They don't come out and say that. It's not so much indeed what they say as it is what they don't say that leads to gospel perversion. And what they don't seem to be able to say is what we have in Christ, how we are joined to Christ, how our sins are completely atoned for by Christ. They can wax eloquently and go on endlessly in describing your obligations to improve. But they say so little, if anything, about Christ. I honestly think that my home church down in Greenville, Faith Free Presbyterian, it was built in large measure by what I sometimes refer to as Baptist burnouts. Those who had had their duty so emphasized practically to the exclusion of everything else that they come to the conclusion, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to meet with the preacher's approval. I'm never going to meet with God's approval. I just fall too short, too constantly, and they either give up or deceive themselves into thinking they've somehow met the standard. I never will forget the way an unusual preacher gave a very striking illustration of what I'm now talking about. C.J. Mahaney was the man's name. Some of you may have heard of him. And uh, he at one time was leader of a large movement, a reformed movement, but a charismatic movement nonetheless. And C.J. Mahaney was a very uh, captive speaker, very easy to listen to. And he tells the story of um, a show that he used to watch on TV when he was younger. Some of you, not all of you, some of you might remember the Ed Sullivan show, I remember it. It was a variety show that came on, I think, on Sunday evenings where you had a wide array of entertainers that were brought up uh, who performed live on the stage on national TV. It was there that the Beatles made their first well-known appearance uh, in these shores. And uh, should we be grateful for that? Well, let's not go there. But anyway, C.J. Mahaney tells the story Uh, of this uh, man. I don't know how you would describe him. He was an acrobat of sorts. And what this man would do is come and set up a stick on the stage, and then he would take a dish, a glass dish, and he would put it on that stick, and he would spin that dish so that it's spinning on the stick, and it's balanced there on the stage. And as soon as he has one of those things going, then he would take another stick and set it up and get another plate and put it on there, and he keeps that one going. 
He has to come back and get the first one as it loses momentum and then go to the next one, keep that going. And then he sets up a third one. And he gets all of these plates going before he's done. He's got, I don't know, half a dozen plates that he's having to keep spinning. And C.J. Mahaney brings out an interesting point. He says, if one of those plates falls to the floor and breaks, that man's career is done. Uh, He just can't do it. It would be over for him if one of those plates hits the floor. And so he's under an immense amount of pressure. He's got to keep these plates spinning, going back to the one that may start to wobble. It's about to fall. He catches it just in time. And then he makes the analogy between that and what is often the Christian life. Okay, here's the first thing, that, the first stick that's put down in the plate on it that spins. You need to read your Bible. Keep that plate spinning. You need to read your Bible. And while that plate is spinning, another stick is brought, another plate put up. You need to memorize more verses than what you're doing. And keep reading your Bible, you know. And don't forget to memorize. And oh, by the way, you need to pray more. There's another stick. Let's get that, that plate spinning. You need to pray. So read your Bible. Don't let that one fall. Memorize Scripture. You need to pray more. Another stick over here. You need to be witnessing, telling others about Jesus. And before, you long, before long, you've got all these plates that correspond to various Christian duties, and you've got to keep them all spinning. And you know, at some point, you're just going to fail to keep up, and those plates are just going to come crashing to the floor. It's a perfect example, a vivid illustration of what the Christian life can be when the blessedness is lost and the focus is so much on duty rather than Christ. Christians who are subjected to that kind of ministry, they become a little bit, I suppose, like automobiles that run with no oil. Where there is no oil, how far is that car going to go? It'll become sluggish, and eventually the pistons will lock up, and it won't move at all. And there are Christians, many of them, in that condition. And Paul would ask them, where is the blessedness you spake of? Well, gospel ministry has been replaced by psychology and self-help seminars. There are books written that endeavor to help people live satisfying lives in joy and peace. And some of them blend psychology and neurology and theology together in an effort to minister to souls in need. Some of these books seem to go so far as to define redemption without any reference to Christ. The focus becomes entirely on the subject, but never upon Christ. Very easy to see the mindset behind such books. It's a mindset that says the gospel is insufficient to help those who struggle. You need the expertise of those who have mastered secular fields of study, who will also include some Bible verses and make the odd reference at times to God. But for the most part, the focus is on the person rather than Christ, the blessedness will never be regained that way. Where did the blessedness go, Paul asks? 
And the answer is not hard to find. The blessedness disappeared when the gospel of Christ was subtly displaced by other things. It can be displaced by legalism. It can be displaced by humanistic pop psychology. It can be displaced by basically anything that will shift the focus from Christ to self. It remains for us then to consider finally and briefly how can we get it back. We've considered what the blessedness is, and boy, it's precious. How did it go? Where did it go? How did we lose it? And now thirdly, perhaps more importantly, most importantly, how can we gain it back? The blessedness that we once spoke of, that we once knew, how do we gain it back? Now I should point out under this heading that the blessing of salvation is never really lost. We have to distinguish between the actual blessedness and our sense of that blessedness. The actual blessing is the blessing of salvation in Christ, and that can never be lost because Christ himself has secured it for us. If Christ has redeemed your soul, your sense of assurance doesn't have any impact on that matter. It's a done deal. Whether you feel the blessing of it or whether the blessing of it has abandoned you, the truth of it stands nevertheless. He purchased us, Christ did, by his blood. He appeased the wrath of God against our sins. He has obtained redemption for us. He has secured for us all that Christ intended to secure. And if Christ has secured them, they can never ultimately be lost. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. We are secure in his hand, and no force in heaven, earth, or hell can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Oftentimes, that simple realization is all that's required to regain the blessedness. So it is not the actual blessedness that can be lost, but it is our sense of that blessedness that can be lost. And the way to ensure that we lose not the blessedness is to keep our focus on our Savior. And this we do by looking for Christ and looking to Christ as we spend time in his word. This book is about him. We must search the book searching for him. And we must keep him as the focus in our prayers. Let's think on what he's done for us. Let's think of our union to him. Let's thank him profusely and constantly for so great salvation. And let's bask in his love. And finally, we must stay the course in the preaching of Christ. May God help us to keep Christ central in every teaching and preaching ministry of this church. We may be tempted at times to swerve from the course. The devil will try to lure us away. There will be times when we think we need something more or something different. We find that happening even in the early church. 
The battle is really all about keeping Christ central in our worship and in our practice. And so long as it can be said what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 1, that before your eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you, so long as this setting forth of Christ will be our focus, then the question should rarely, if ever, need to be asked, where is the blessedness ye spake of? Christ is the blessing. Christ is our life, our prophet, our priest, our king, the only mediator between God and men. He deserves to be and will be our all in all so long as we keep our minds and hearts stayed on him. May God grant to us then the blessedness which we testify to by granting to us more of his son, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the blessedness of the gospel of Christ. We thank thee for all that we have gained in him. We thank thee, Lord, for saving our souls, cleansing us from sin, bringing us into thy family, making us heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We thank thee for clothing us in a robe of righteousness. We thank you for taking our sins to thyself. We thank thee, O Lord, for blessings untold that we can't possibly fathom in all of their breadth and length and depth and height. But Lord, we cannot deny either that there are times when these things seem to be just so much academia to us, information that we give assent to and fail to know the reality of. We're wholly dependent upon Thee, O Lord, to grant us the joy of Thy salvation. And so, Lord, for any in our midst today that may have lost the sense of blessedness, May it please thee, Lord, to restore it to such as these. Oh, we need it, Lord, we, we need it above all else. Thy word tells us in the book of Nehemiah that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Lord, we must have then that sense of blessedness. To those who have lost it, Lord, may they gain it. <coughs> For those who have it, give us the needed grace to maintain it, O Lord. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.